This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Mead Johnson. Reckitt Mead Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive NFML portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meadjohnson.com. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Journal Club Sunday. Daphna, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. We've got some neat articles. We've got some neat articles. We have some. I wanted to share. I wanted to share some of the news with the audience of the fact that it appears as if we are going to be able to offer CME credits mm. for the podcast. Mm. So stay tuned. Uh, we will. We're basically approved by the university um, and we just have to figure out a way to dispense those CME credits. Um, we're not sure yet how it's going to work, whether you're going to text a number uh, a number to a phone number and, or, or if you're going to just go online, I'm not sure. We'll, we're figuring it we'll out. We'll figure it out. <laughs> one, way, one way or another. Yeah. Um, we're going to have uh, more giveaways coming up this week mm-hmm. on the Neonatal Network. I think we're going to start giving out some licenses to GraphPad Prism, which is a statistical software, which is kind of nice. Uh, so if you haven't yet logged in or registered, the time is now. Um, I mean, a lot of people registered in the first week, but I, people are being shy, I think. I think that's posting. fine. The, the grant applications for research are coming up June 1st. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, we're also working on providing IRB support. I actually put a poll this week, this morning on the network. Not this morning, I guess, because this is airing on Sunday. <laughs> but I put in a poll asking people whether that was something they were interested in. Because I feel like this is something that often comes in the way if you're at a smaller institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We're just trying to get people what they need. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal, slowly but surely. We want to become the place where if you need anything for research purposes, we're going to be able to provide it. And uh, we're starting off with statistical support, library management, and uh, grant support. Okay, so let's begin then. My, uh, the, uh, my chief at the division always used to say that. Um, if, uh, if we don't begin, however will we finish? That's correct. Yeah, right. That's what, uh, what's his name? Jimmy Turner always says, right? Uh, start by starting. Start by starting. Okay. So um, the first paper we should be talking about today is mm. uh, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's been the talk of the town. It's called yeah. Nasal High Flow Therapy During Neonatal Endotracheal Intubation. Uh, first author is Kate Hodgson. Hodgson. Um, and the last author is Brett Manley, who's a Twitter friend of ours. The data is coming from Melbourne, Australia. They're very prolific over there, you know, mm-hmm. these Australians, they're uh, <laughs> setting the pace. For sure. 
Um, so what is, I thought the background for this study was very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. They're saying the rates of successful intubation on the first attempt are low. Right. Um, and they're re reporting data suggesting that it's about like 50% success. And they're even quoting some reports saying that the success rate on the first attempt is less than 25%. Um, their data from the lead site in the study showed that success rate of about 30% on the first attempt. So they're really painting a picture yeah. where there's really something that needs to be done. And um, beyond the success rate, they were talking about the fact that the duration of an intubation mm -hmm. is often longer than, than what is usually recommended. And the final point that they're making, which I think is very interesting and something that we've talked with one of our upcoming guests, is the fact that we're doing less and less intubations. Right. Um, and so as we are doing less of these procedures and we need to be just as successful, mm -hmm. um, we need to put the circumstances and the context to succeed on the first attempt. And yeah. And I mean, the data is really clear that level of training and number of opportunities makes a difference in terms of successful first attempts. Absolutely. And I feel almost fortunate that I was training in the mm -hmm. era where we suctioned endotracheal suction on every meconium mm -hmm. uh, delivery almost. Um, that got me like a ton of intubation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, that's no longer there and we're better at preventing self-extubation. So, yeah. so the question the, the paper was asking was, what if um, we started using high flow nasal cannula? So you would put like the cannula on the baby's nose during the intubation to provide supportive humidified distending airway pressure. And that's a very interesting idea, right? I mean, um, you may have done this before, right? If mm -hmm. you have a baby that's on high flow, that's not right. doing well, you're about to intubate. Many times people would just leave the cannula mm -hmm. in, right? Um, I also know of friends of mine at Columbia Presbyterian where they used to jerry-rig like uh, um, an inlet of oxygen or of oxygen flow to the blade so that as they're intubating, mm. they're providing uh, some flow. So, That's cool. Yeah, I mean, th this. I'm saying all these things to say that this is a, an idea that's been out there. Um, so it's it's kind of nice that this is finally getting See, tested. studied, yeah. Yeah. So the data comes from two centers, the Royal Women's Hospital and Monash Children's Hospital in Australia. It's a randomized control trial comparing high flow nasal cannula versus no support during endotracheal intubation. They included any infant undergoing endotracheal intubation in the delivery room or in the NICU. They excluded babies who underwent nasal intubation, babies who had heart rates below 120 beats per minute, um, immediate, I mean, um, heart rate below 120, like immediately before uh, randomization, obviously, meaning if they had like some hemodynamic instability. Uh, any contraindication to high flow nasal cannula, such as like um, congenital diaphragmatic hernia, nasal anomalies, um, if the babies had any cyanotic heart disease, or if there was any suspect suspicion of COVID-19 in either um, the baby or the mother, which feels like almost everybody these days. Mm. Uh, randomization happened before the first intubation attempt. Um, there's some important design information that I wanted to highlight in the study because I think that they, 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 they thought carefully about it and I think we should commend them for that. So the pre-intubation FiO2, the use of pre-oxygenation, 
the use of video laryngoscopy, the commencement, duration, and termination of the intubation, all that stuff was left to the discretion of the clinician or the provider leading the procedure. Um, except for uh, deliveries that happened in the delivery room, all other mm -hmm. intubations were pre-medicated with atropine, fentanyl, and uh, succimethonium. I, I mean, I don't know. I usually say sucks. Uh, <laughs> and that was standard practice at both centers. Uh, the high-flow nasal cannula, it was applied prior to the intubation. It's not really taped, taped to the face, and the flow was set, was set at 8 liters per minute. So mm -hmm. that's you, you can have a discussion about that. That's a lot of flow. Um, and yeah, but anyway, there's very good videos on the on the site, on the New England Journal of New England Journal of Medicine website that you can actually see how the procedure was done. The FiO2 was set um, at the concentration being delivered before laryngoscopy and was increased to 100% if the O2 sat fell below 90%. So something that I don't think is unreasonable, but something that is not common practice, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the successful intubation, high flow therapy was discontinued. So far, so good? Got it. Good. So what was the primary outcome of the study? The primary outcome was successful intubation on the first attempt without physiological instability in the infant. That has a lot of words in it. So mm -hmm. what did they define as an intubation? The intubation is the, uh, an intubation attempt was defined as the insertion of the laryngoscope blade beyond the infant's lips until its removal from the infant's mouth. So as soon as you put that blade in, it's, it counts. <laughs> but that's different than how many times you put the tube in. I right. know, but that's why that's why I wanted to clarify, right? Because you may think you just look and then until you try to pass the tube, that's not, no. As soon as the laryngoscope blade gets into the baby's mouth, it be, the first attempt has begun, which I think is good, right? Because sure. it makes, yeah. A successful intubation was defined as the completion of the intubation attempt with correct placement of the ET tube as confirmed by the detection of expired carbon dioxide <clears throat> with a calorimetric detector. So like the, the color change thing that goes from purple to yellow. Um, <coughs> sorry about that. Physiologic instability was defined as desaturation with an absolute decrease in oxygen saturation of more than 20% from the immediate pre-laryngoscopy baseline for any duration or bradycardia defined as a heart rate of less than 100 beats per minute during the first intubation attempt. So I thought they were, they were very, very good mm -hmm. at defining. Secondary outcomes included median oxygen saturation during the intubation, the time to the, to the time two and duration of the desaturation, the duration and the number of intubation attempts, some pre-specified adverse events that included cardiac compressions, epinephrine, pneumothoraces, um, and so on. They wanted to detect a um, an improvement in successful in intubation without instability from 30 to 50% with a 90% power. So that required about 123 intubation. And the thing that was important to know is that this was done, the primary analysis was done as an in, uh, on an intention to treat analysis, mm -hmm. right? Once randomized, always analyzed. Mm -hmm. That's the way I remembered intention to treat. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> um, okay, so what were the results? So they enrolled patients from November 2018 to April 2021. The final number of patients that they enrolled was 202 infants, making up 251 intubations. There was 124 intubations in the high flow group, 127 
in the control. The median postmenstrual age was about 28 weeks. The median weight was 920 grams. And the median age at randomization was 10 hours. So for the primary outcome, successful intubation on the first attempt without physiologic instability in the infant was achieved in 50% in the high flow nasal cannula group compared to 31.5% in the standard care group, confidence interval 6 to 29. The number needed to treat was 6. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 mm-hmm. you know that's pretty impressive results. The secondary outcomes it's it's less than the number needed to treat for like therapeutic hypothermia. That's mm-hmm. says something. Yeah. The the secondary outcomes the median oxygen saturation during the first intubation attempt was 93.5% in the high flow group compared to 88.5 in the standard group. Uh this following results I'm about to say is not statistically significant but was interesting among the infants with uh, an episode of oxygen desaturation, the mean time to desaturation was longer in the high flow nasal cannula group, 44 seconds, compared to the standard group, 35 seconds. Mm -hmm. Which means that when you had the high flow, even if you had to reach a desaturation, that would take longer. So it buys you more time. More time, that's right. Uh, But that was not statistically significant. The confidence interval went from like 0.2 to 17. The median number of intubation attempt during uh, the median, sorry, the median number of intubation attempt, the duration of the first and any subsequent intubation attempts, the percentage of intubations that were um, esophageal intubation and the percentage of intubation in which a serious adverse event occurred were all similar between the two groups. So the conclusion of the paper is that um, the use of high flow therapy during oral endotracheal intubation led to a greater likelihood of successful intubation on the first attempt without physiologic instability. Now, I think this is a very, very interesting paper. As we've mentioned earlier, I think to me, as neonatology fellows get less and less experience mm-hmm. intubating neonates and not, not their fault, we're just much better. We, we're no longer performing these routine endotracheal suctioning in meconium aspiration. We're much better at managing babies on non-invasive ventilation. We'll actually talk about that later in the show. Um, and then you have all these other things, right? We have LISA, we have SALSA, we have all these other new methods of delivering surfactant that used to be done through an ET tube that now no longer require an ET tube. I think in this context, it's important to me that this study shows a way to create a protocol around intubation that leads to a very safe and successful procedure. Um, and I think, I think practices are going to change right away. I think this is a paper mm-hmm. that you use and you change your practices. Now, um, I think there's still going to be some some cocky, egotistic people, maybe like myself, who are going to say, I got it. <laughs> I got the first intubation. But um, I still think um, that protocols should be adjusted based on this paper. Mm-hmm. What, 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 what were your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, what's the downside, right? So so if you can't see a downside, and, may, and maybe people will report back to us what they think the downside is. Um, then, then I think you should do. I think you should do it. I think we sh- we owe it to babies to give them the best first attempt every time. Yeah. So I think the downside is, like I said, if you have a baby that you recently that you're you, that is on high. I mean, my 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 thought process is how much time to set up the high. Sure. Right? Sure. So, if it's emergent, then so you yeah, usually yeah. ask your therapist, hey, we're going to set up for intubation. Get the tube. Get this. Get that. But if the baby is not already on high flow, you also have to set up the high flow. That takes yeah. more time. The logistics sure. of the whole procedure may be an issue. But I do feel like 
if the baby has the high flow on or if the cannulas are there, that's, that's a, that's a no brainer. Yeah. The question then becomes if you're delivering bubble CPAP through some prongs, do you switch to high flow for the procedure or you just leave yeah. the bubble CPAP on? My, my thought would be just leave it on. Uh, don't, don't switch it. Right. Uh, yeah. es especially if they're like OptiFlow or RAM cannula where you have some leaks anyway. Yeah, it's interesting that they chose high flow over CPAP because there are so many babies, say the RDS baby, the late pretermer, who is potentially likely to need an intubation for surfactant, maybe in and out surf, um, who's already on CPAP. So I don't know. Maybe that's the next iteration, the next group of babies. Right, right. I think, yeah, I think uh, to me, the fact that they're using eight liters of high flow, mm -hmm. I would CPAP. say it's CPAP, right? <laughs> yeah. And and we could have a discussion about how much flow is equivalent to CPAP. The bottom mm -hmm. line is that it's very variable, but eight liters is a yeah, shit, it's a shitload of flow. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, depending on your interface, it may be more flow than right. the right. CPAP. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, I really like this paper. They have great videos. Um, yeah. I think it's important for articles and journals to include more media mm -hmm. in their papers. I think um, enough with just words. Like like Dr. Jensen said, popping pictures and figures and graphs. Yeah. Like like most of these papers are no longer getting printed, right? I mean, most of the stuff is being done online. So there's no there's no it's no real no estate issue there. To. Just yeah. like <laughs> just give us more. Um, but yeah, that's it. Okay. I like that. Well, I guess in the respiratory vein, <laughs> yeah. um, I wanted to review this paper from the Journal of Pediatrics, um, Oxygenation Factors Associated with Retinopathy of Prematurity in Extremely Low Birth Weight Infants. Um, lead author Bharath uh, Srivatsa. Um, this is coming to us from Atlanta, Georgia. So what's the question? They really wanted to study characteristics of oxygenation in the first um, two postnatal months and um, the correlation of those features with the occurrence um, and severity of retinopathy of prematurity. So why does it matter, right? So we just had on the board review podcast um, a retinopathy of prematurity. And there's still lots of things we don't understand about retinopathy of prematurity. We know it has something to do with high oxygen, but really when, 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 and how much is, is still up for discussion and for study. Um, so this study is actually part of another study where they described um, an oxygen monitoring strategy to look at uh, basically episodes of hyperoxemia, hypooxemia, and then looking at was it hyperoxemia because the babies were in ambient air, 21%, and they were high satting, or um, was it hyperoxemia because we were giving them too much supplemental oxygen? They also were studying um, something called a titration index, which really looked at basically how often were the nurses titrating the oxygen to, to follow the baby. Um, and so this uh, is part of that study looking really specifically at the ROP outcomes. And, and was it right, if I remember correctly, hyperoxemia was like if you were setting above 95. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So hyperoxemia is defined as above 95%. Um, and then again, either ambient air or iatrogenic, which means you were getting supplemental oxygen and hypo hypoxemia was below 90%. Um, and then they classified hypoxemia as uh, mild 85 to 89%, moderate 80 to 84%, and severe below 80%, which I thought was appropriate. Mm-hmm. So this was a retrospective observational um, study. So basically what they did is they um, analyzed simultaneous FiO2 and oxygen saturation data at one-minute intervals while babies were on a ventilator, on CPAP, or on high-flow nasal cannula above two liters per minute. And then they took the raw data and they looked at these measures of oxygen lability. So they looked, like I said, hyperoxia, hypoxemia, um, the swings between hyper and hypoxemia. um, And those are measures of the oxygen lability, as they called it. And then they looked at the titration index, again, was a measure of oxygen titration performed by the bedside nurse. Uh, well, staff, I guess anybody could have been <laughs> titrating at the time. Inclusion criteria, extremely low birth weight infants, so um, babies less than 1,000 grams born between uh, January 2016 and December uh, 2020 and admitted to this level three NICU who had this oxygenation data for at least 45 of the first 60 days were eligible. Babies excluded were those who lacked FiO2 data who had FiO2 data available for less than 45 days or those babies who did not survive to eye examination. And then the primary outcome was development of ROP. So mild ROP was stage one and stage two and did not require treatment. Severe ROP um, was infants who developed stage three ROP uh, who may or may not have required treatment. And in this cohort, they didn't have any stage four or stage five, which as you'll recall, are partial or complete retinal detachments. So that's good. Um, so their baseline characteristics. So they had 101 infants who met the study inclusion criteria, 53 of whom did not develop ROP, 33 developed mild ROP, and 17 developed severe ROP. There were six infants um, treated uh, with either um, bevacizumab or um, uh, laser therapy. And the groups did demonstrate significant differences in in several respects, and this is pretty consistent with other literature. Severe ROP was associated with a lower birth weight, a lower gestational age at birth, a lower percentage of um, black infants, a higher percentage of white infants, a higher percentage of Hispanic ethnicity, a lower five-minute APGAR score, and a higher... Hold on, hold on, hold on. What is is that about the ethnicity? It feels like you you named everybody. (laughs) I guess... Okay. Severe ROP as compared to not having ROP. Okay. That's the comparison. <laughs> so there were there were less babies who were black and Hispanic who developed severe ROP. More babies. Oh, okay. Right. Okay. You got I'm it? Assuming. You with me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. A <laughs> uh, lower five minute APGAR score and a higher number of ventilator days. Okay. Uh, primary outcomes. So the daily mean FiO2 percentages um, were significantly higher uh, for those patients with severe ROP compared to those without ROP, which which 
is not surprising. They also looked at um, FiO2 measurements over time. So the mean FiO2 percentage fell for all three groups during the first five days, rose to peak at nine to 17 days, then gradually fell over the next several weeks. The mean uh, oxygen saturation fell from a peak at four to five days to a nadir at 19 to 26 days, then gradually rose to a second peak at 55 to 58 days, which is interesting because that's kind of what it feels like in the union. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the unadjusted daily mean titration index, so again, how often were people titrating um, the FiO2 at bedside, were significantly higher for patients in both the mild and the severe ROP groups compared with a group without ROP. Um, and they were, uh, again, significantly higher for patients in the group with severe ROP compared with a group without ROP. Patients in the severe ROP group had a significantly lower mean percentage of time in ambient air hyperoxemia compared with patients in the group without ROP. So they were less likely to have hyperoxia without supplemental oxygen. And the adjusted daily mean percentage of time in iatrogenic hyperoxemia, meaning they were getting supplemental FiO2 that put them in that um, greater than 95% range, was significantly higher for patients in the severe ROP group compared with those without ROP. And overall, patients in the severe ROP group had significantly higher daily hyperoxemia index means over time compared with those without ROP. In addition, patients uh, with severe uh, ROP had significantly more hypoxemic episodes over time than patients without ROP. And the number of hypoxemic episodes increased steadily over the first few weeks, peaking at three weeks for the group without ROP and the group with mild ROP, peaking at four to five weeks for the group with severe ROP, and then gradually fell for all groups. The adjusted daily mean percentage of time in mild hypoxemia was significantly higher for patients with severe ROP than those without ROP. The mean percentage of time in moderate hypoxemia was significantly higher uh, for patients with severe ROP compared to those without ROP. And the daily mean percentage of time in severe hypoxemia, so the lowest group, also significantly higher for patients with severe ROP. Interestingly, there were no statistically significant differences in the number of rapid hypoxemia to hyperoxemia or vice versa swings between the three groups, which is actually something that people question. Is it is it the frequency of kind of the volatility variability of, of our oxygen saturation? So the study takeaways are really that infants with severe ROP um, were exposed to higher levels of FiO2 during the first five weeks of birth. They tended to be smaller, more premature, and sicker from a respiratory standpoint. Ambient air and iatrogenic hyperoxemia were commonly observed, um, and ambient air um, exposure to ambient air hyperoxemia was negatively associated with severe ROP, but iatrogenic hyperoxemia was positively associated with severe ROP. And then severe ROP was associated with an increased duration and number of episodes of hypoxemia. So, I mean, nothing was surprising about this, um, but I, it was interesting, you know, people ask that question all the time, specifically about babies who are high satting, um, but who are on ambient air. So it was, I think, uh, an interesting, an interesting paper to address specifically that question. Yeah. I, um, 
this paper I thought was going to be a, a doozy, right? I was like, all right, it's going to tell us the same thing. If you if the kids who are sa- or desetting more often, they're going to have uh-huh. more ROP, they're going to require more O's, et cetera. Mm-hmm. First of all, the graphs at the end are pretty cool. neat yeah. because we often are told and, and, and taught, right, that the babies have these very high setting periods mm-hmm. in the first week of life. And after mm-hmm. day seven, it starts going down. Mm-hmm. So they've basically plotted the SATs yeah. and the FiO2 of all these kids all the babies. over 60 <laughs> days. So you can, even if you're not interested, like they, there's a trend in, in how saturations behave. Yeah. So That's, you can basically predict, you know, what, yeah. I mean, it, what it, will I, happen yeah, I mean, for most babies. I, if you're giving a talk about like how does the O2 sat behaves in, in preterm infants. I think these are great graphs to pull for mm-hmm. your presentation. The thing that was killing me was I was reading through the paper and I thought, all right, so this is a, a case for um, automatic adjustment of FiO2. Mm-hmm. You you just, that's the whole point, right? You if they, need, if they need the O's to maintain saturation within range, then then they may get ROP and that sucks. But on the other hand, they cannot die. So that's it. But the thing that killed me was if you looked back, you mentioned that the babies who had more ROP had more frequent FiO2 titration adjustments. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is that supposed to mean? Because then that means that the automatic FiO2 adjustment, as it makes these adjustments continuously, um, is that one of the reasons why we're going to not see that much of an improvement in, in rates of ROP or survival? I don't know. I thought well, that was I thought that was very interesting. I think the one thing that they were not able to capture, and maybe they do in the other papers, but what does titration look like, right? So when the baby's down and you jack them up to a hundred, right? right? And then they sit there for a while, and then you're like, oh, I'll bring it back down a few at a time, or I'll, okay, I'll put the baby right back to where they were. So you know. I think there's so much variability in what does titration mean and how, uh, you know, are we, how often do we overshoot on titration, which is like a lot, a lot. Mm -hmm. So I still think there's definitely a place for this automated oxygenation closed loop system. So. All right. Okay. It's 30 minutes. We've done. done I know we did two papers. (laughs) All right. So I'm, Going next to Jamapedes, mm. uh, this is a paper that caught also some attention on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Non-Invasive High-Frequency Oscillatory Ventilation versus Nasal Continuous Positive Airway Pressure versus Nasal Intermittent Positive Pressure Ventilation as Post-Extubation Support for Preterm Neonates in China, a Randomized Clinical Trial. A mouthful. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But at uh, least you know what the paper is about. I think you got the conclusion right there. <laughs> um you know, it's a bit like when you watch the trailer for the movies and it's the whole story. <laughs> All the good stuff like, is in the like, trailer. Yeah, <laughs> First author is Jing Wang Zhu uh, from the Nasal Oscillation Post-Extubation Study Group, the Nazone Group. It's out of China. I said it's the Chamapeds. So nasal high frequency, if you're like me, it's still very much of a foreign concept. Um, I have never used nasal high frequency. Mm-hmm. I want to give a shout out to our friend, Michael Narvi, who had written a blog post in 2015 uh, that I had to like dig back up mm. um, where he talks about nasal high frequency. And so you should, we'll link that in the show and, and you can you can take a look. The question that the group asked was, in preterm infants, 
would nasal high frequency be more efficacious than nasal CPAP or nasal IMV in reducing the need for reintubation after extubation or mm -hmm. until NICU discharge? Mm -hmm. So they conducted this multi-centered study in 69 tertiary referral NICUs in China. They looked at babies with a gestational age between 25 and 32 and 6 uh, weeks, the the neonates, neonates who received any form of um, uh, IMV. And they had to be uh, of a post-conceptual age younger than 36 weeks. The last inclusion criteria was whether they met an extubation readiness criteria, and those that was defined in the paper. So the extubation readiness criteria for this group was that the infant had received loading and maintenance dose of caffeine so that they were optimized. They had a pH of 7.2 or greater, a PaCO2 of 60 or lower on an ABG or a CBG, no venous gases. Uh, the 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 mean airway pressure between seven and nine centimeters of water, then FiO2 between uh, below 30%, 30% or less actually, and so sufficient spontaneous breathing effort as per clinical evaluation. So they didn't really comment much more on that. Mm -hmm. They excluded any babies with major congenital anomalies or chromosomal anomalies, neuromuscular disease, upper respiratory tract anomalies, surgical conditions, grade four IVH uh, before the first extubation, obviously, a birth weight less than 600 grams. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. It was very specific. I was like, oh, that's, that's, that, that comes out of nowhere. Um, but maybe because of, of interface, I'm not sure. Suspected congenital lung malformation, lung diseases, or pulmonary hypoplasia. There was something else that bothered me that I have to mention. Um, it just bothered me. Um, <laughs> it said in the methods, race and ethnicity data were not collected. All the participants were Chinese newborns. I was like, <laughs> that, that's, that doesn't make sense. But listen, uh, it's just, yeah, I think, I think there's more to demographics than this. Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and we've talked about this. There's a lot of data that we could collect on parents to understand their situation in the NICU. So yeah, mm -hmm. that was a bit let, of, a, of a letdown. So yeah. babies who were about to get extubated were randomized to either NIMV, nasal CPAP, or nasal high frequency, right? If a baby was reintubated, they were then re-extubated to the same modality again, right? So if they extubated a baby mm. to nasal high frequency and that failed, they re-intubated. And if they had to re-extubate, then they went right back to the same mode that they were on before, the nasal high frequency. All modalities were delivered. That's a, that's a commitment to the treatment arm. I would be upset if I was a parent. <laughs> right. It didn't work. It didn't and you're going to put them back on it. <laughs> but but it makes sense, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. I, 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 yeah. So um, the last thing is that all the modalities were delivered via short binasal prongs. So what was the, the primary outcome? There were three of them. There was total duration of, um, of IMV during the NICU stay, the need for reintubation, and they had pre-specified reintubation criteria, and the, num the number of ventilator ventilatory-free days, so like uh, off the ventilator. I'm sorry. I'm I'm slurring my my speech. It's late at night, and it's late. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> Secondary outcome was uh, some efficacy and safety endpoints, and you can look that up. So the power they wanted to see if they could effectuate a, re a twenty percent reduction in mechanical ventilation duration, and so for that they needed fourteen hundred and forty infants. This was also done on an intention to treat analysis once randomized, 
always add on. Mm -hmm. So the results, um, so they needed 1,440 infants. So they got 1,440 infants. Mm -hmm. They had 480 infants in each group, 480 in the CPAP and IMV and the high frequency. Postmenstrual age was 29 weeks. The median weight was 920 grams. 60% were boys. And the median age at intervention was less than four days. So let's look at some of these outcomes. For the primary outcome, no difference in IMV duration between nasal CPAP and nasal IMV. The duration of IMV was longer in the NIPPV, the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or NIMV, and nasal CPAP group than in the nasal high frequency group. The frequency rates of reintubation and reintubation within 48 hours from extubation were different between the study groups and significantly higher in the nasal CPAP versus nasal high frequency group, 12.5% versus 7.5%, and versus the NIPPV group. So the risk difference there was 8.1% versus 2.9% in the, yeah. Although no difference was observed between the NIPPV and the nasal high frequency group. Ventilator-free days offered, differed between the study groups and were significantly fewer in the nasal CPAP group than in the NIPPV group. Looking at some of these secondary outcomes, secondary efficacy outcomes did not differ between the study groups except for postnatal corticosteroids and the duration of study intervention. Postnatal corticosteroids were used less in the nasal high-frequency group than in the CPAP group. The risk difference was 7.3%, whereas the duration of the study intervention was shorter in the nasal high-frequency group than in the NIPPV group. Um, the median difference was minus 1 with a range of minus 3 to 0 days. Similarly, the study groups did not differ significantly in secondary safety outcome except for weekly weight gain, which was higher in neonates who were treated with nasal high frequency than those who received nasal CPAP. So the conclusion is that um, nasal high frequency, if used after extubation and until NICU discharge, slightly reduced the duration of intermittent mechanical ventilation in preterm neonates, whereas both nasal high frequency and NIMV or NIPPV had a lower risk of reintubation than nasal CPAP. These three respiratory support techniques were equally safe. Um, I I think this is interesting. Um, mm -hmm. I don't even know if I mean we don't have to be very right. honest with you. We don't have nasal high frequency technology in our in our NICU. <clears throat> but I always have an issue of people comparing NIMV, NAVA. Uh, I'm sorry, NIVNAVA or nasal high frequency with nasal CPAP, right? I mean, as soon as you enter a rate, it's it's not really fair game. Mm -hmm. But um, those that data was pretty interesting. Um, now, the one thing that I wanted to mention was that there's a lot of significance, right? But I don't know clinically whether mm -hmm. the data that I've, we presented today was so striking that mm -hmm. it will require a change right away. So for example, right. when we're looking at the primary outcomes again, the, the total duration of invasive mechanical ventilation was 7.8 days in the CPAP group, 7.3 in the NIMV group, and right. 6.2 in the nasal high frequency. So I understand it's, it's different, but it's not a massive, massive mm -hmm. difference. Um, when we're looking at ventil vent ventilator-free days, 
in uh, and the median of that was 32 days in the CPAP group, 35 in the NIPPV group, 34 in the nasal high frequency. Mm-hmm. So the data is... Yeah, the, 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 statistically significant. Is it clinically significant? That's the question. People have mentioned that on Twitter as well. Yeah. Um, and and for for me, I'm always thinking, I'm, I'm very self-centered, so I'm thinking, am I going to use this? <laughs> mm-hmm. But the bottom line is, it requires a lot. It's going to require a lot for me to get this into the NICU, right? That we That's have right. to like call the company, get this technology. And then when you're looking at the data, it's like, oh, is it, is it really worth it? I mean, am I not going to get by with NivNava or even even an IMV? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think this is, anytime something like this comes out in Jamapedes, we kind of have to review it. But uh, yeah, it's not an earth shattering paper. Unlike the high flow nasal cannula paper where I think practices might need to get adjusted tomorrow, you, you have time. Well, I mean, it's still good to have the information, right? Just because it wasn't, just because you won't change your practice now, you know that you don't I think. To- I think it's, um, to me, the key to successful respiratory management is being like a restaurant and having mm-hmm. lots of options because every baby responds differently. Uh, some babies like Nivnava, some babies like CPAP, some babies like high flow. Um, it really is something that has to be tailored to the infant. So I think if this is something you can have in your unit and you can offer to your patient population, I think that's fantastic. And I think the data shows that it's safe and it's just as effective, if not better. Um, so yeah, but if there's a cost associated to bringing that into the unit, that's, yeah, you're going to have to look a into that. A big cost, yeah. You know, lots of people would disagree with your statement about your menu of respiratory options. Oh, I am willing to fight people on this. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I'll just leave it at that. You so, know, I care about individualized medicine, but there are, I think, lots of people who feel like you can have one system and use it very Oh, well. for sure. For sure. But I do think that if you know how to use all these different systems mm-hmm. very well mm-hmm. and you can offer them, you will have so many more options that your outcomes, I think, are going to be the better for it. Because yeah. you're, again, some babies do well on an IMV. Mm-hmm. Some babies need Nevnava. Some babies just do well on CPAP. And having all these tools at your disposal Dispose makes a huge, them. huge difference. Um, so, yeah, come at me. <laughs> Literally, on Twitter, add him. Okay. No, please um, don't. Please. <laughs> Um, maybe not this week. You won't be able to respond this week, but, um, I'm, uh, going to review this, uh, article from archives of disease, child, fetal, and neonatal edition. Um, the title is comparison of neonatal morbidity and mortality between single room and open bay care, a retrospective cohort study, uh, lead author, Sophie Jansen. This is coming from the Netherlands. So the question is, are there risks um, with the other major neonatal morbidities associated with the move to single family rooms. Um, and obviously this is an interesting question because, um, many centers are moving towards single family rooms in an effort to enhance family centered care. And, um, several studies have shown beneficial effects of the transformation of private rooms, including things like shortened length of stay, earlier transition to full feeds, increased breastfeeding rates, um, and improved overall neurodevelopmental outcomes at 18 months of age. Some of the unfavorable effects um, that have been reported are higher workloads for like the nursing staff, um, lower infant language scores at two years of age. And actually some studies showed surprisingly increased maternal stress. So this study wanted to look at um, 
not those features, but really um, was it linked to the other common neonatal morbidities? So uh, this was a retrospective cohort study of two epochs before and after uh, the building of single family rooms in the same unit. The inclusion criteria were preterm neonates born at a gestational age of less than 32 weeks and admitted to the NICU between uh, May 2015 and May 2019. Exclusion criteria were neonates born on the day of the unit transition, uh, those admitted to both unit types so that they were like transfers, <laughs> like from our unit, uh, from one unit type to the other. And then neonates with an admission duration less than 24 hours and those infants born less than 24 weeks were also excluded. Um, the primary outcome uh, was really the baseline characteristics, um, including respiratory support needs. And the major neonatal morbidities and mortalities included were um, the, the major neonatal morbidities included were a symptomatic uh, treated PDA, spontaneous intestinal perforation, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, retinopathy of prematurity, intraventricular hemorrhage, cystic PVL, pneumothorax, hyperbilly uh, requiring phototherapy, inotropic support, um, blood, uh, red blood cell and platelet transfusion needs, subclinical uh, seizures, um, and then looked at in hospital mortality. They did not look at NAC or late onset sepsis um, since they felt like this had been well evaluated in other studies. So they were looking at a lot of things to see if being in a single bay unit or um, the single family room uh, type unit made any uh -huh. difference. So overall, they had 356 uh, babies um, admitted to the open bay and 343 to the single room unit. Differences between the two groups included a higher number of multiples admitted to single family room um, uh, and... Differences between the two groups included a higher number of multiples admitted to single family rooms and more neonates admitted to the single room unit required surfactant. Interestingly enough, there were no further differences in baseline characteristics between the cohorts. Um, overall, neonates in the single room unit cohort had a non it's confusing because an open bay sounds like a single room, but single room unit, just to clarify, means like an individual patient room. Um, neonates in the single room unit cohort had a non-significant but greater rate of ROP stage two versus the babies in the open bay unit. The open bay unit cohort had more platelet transfusions, but otherwise there were no differences found between the cohorts with respect to the rates of um, symptomatic treated PDA, SIP, pneumothorax, BPD, IVH, cystic PVL, hyperbilirubinemia, um, inotropic support, e blood transfusions, subclinical seizures, or in-hospital mortality. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like the number of transfusion was like one. The right, it was not was very like different. One yeah. versus two. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, after adjustment for gestational age, sex, antenatal steroid therapy, and low five-minute APGAR less than seven, single-room care was independently associated with a decreased risk of uh, um, severe, uh, no, significant, symptomatic, symptomatic, hemodynamically significant, significant PDA. Sorry. Single room care was independently associated with a decreased risk of, um, uh, hemodynamically significant PDA, uh, the adjusted odds ratio of 0 0.5. 
So in general, no significant differences in neonatal morbidities or mortality was observed between neonates admitted to a single room versus open bay NICU. Small differences in um, platelet transfusions, uh, small differences in ROP stage greater than or equal to two and our significant PDA. Hmm. I don't know what to make of some of that information. Yeah, I think, I think, <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were done. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it's like what we discussed with Christy Waterberg, right? It's like, how yeah. are you going to read this data? You could say, well, there's no difference. We're going to stick with our open bay unit. Right. It makes no difference. Or you're going to say, well, you see, um, those kids are not getting forgotten in their single rooms, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's the other argument you hear. It's like, oh, there's these single rooms and the kids are behind closed doors and we just respond to the alarms if we respond to the alarms. Mm -hmm. So... I think you can make the case for both uh, single bay, single room and open bay. Um, yeah. And to me, it's it's much more complicated than that. I think we've yeah. talked about FICARE and we've talked about sure. going back to a situation where the mom and the baby are in the same mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah, I think we're just letting other philosophies permeate to the NICU. And maybe the NICU has to think outside the box a little bit. And I think FICARE does that. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's one of the main potential confounders maybe of the study. Uh, you know, there are two different epochs, obviously. And if you are making a change to single family rooms, I mean, theoretically, you may be making a lot of other changes in a unit, uh, both cultural changes, logistical changes, uh, technology changes. So... Hard yeah, to and, say. and that's and that's always the the and that's always also the issue with that type of design, right? Because it's right. not two units running at the same time. Right. It's a historical cohort. So you have the open bay that was like 2014, I think, mm -hmm. or something like that, 2015, mm -hmm. and then you have 2019, which is the single room. So right. like, you you would hope that the unit also gets better at managing babies every year. So mm -hmm. um, could that be confounding? It's always difficult. The group that's publishing this is, is by the way, st a stellar, stellar right. group that has done stellar work in neurodevelopment. So I'm not mm -hmm. questioning, but you know, um, this is a discussion that will never end, and everybody is nope. going to find the like. You're going to get so much confirmation bias when, like, whatever, whatever you want to find to sustain your argument, one way or another, you will have data for. <laughs> you can get it done. <laughs> Yeah. All right. And we settled our unit is kind of a hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you got okay. one more for us? I got one more for, um, I got one more for everybody. So this was a paper, hold on. So this was also in the archives of diseases in childhood, fetal and neonatal edition. The first author is our friend again, Brett Manley from Australia. The title of the article is Trends in the Use of Non-Invasive Respiratory Support for Term Infants in Tertiary Neonatal Units in Australia and New Zealand. I'm all, all, all pulmonary this, this week. That's right. <laughs> uh, the, the idea here is that we've been using an IMV much mm -hmm. more in recent years. We've gotten very comfortable managing babies on an IMV, mm -hmm. um, especially even term infants. Um, yeah. And so the question they were asking was, has the use of non-invasive respiratory support to treat term infant in Australia and New Zealand, which is the area that we're looking at, has, has it changed over time? And if so, 
whether there are parallel changes in short-term respiratory outcomes. Mm -hmm. So they did a retrospective uh, database review of, of data from Australia and New Zealand from 2010 to 2018 of term infants admitted to the NICU. And the idea is, I, I forgot to mention that in the background, which I think is a very interesting point that Brett is, is, is bringing up, saying we've gotten so comfortable using an IMV that have we now developed a lower threshold to start an IMV on some of these babies, which in turn might increase separation from the mother, right? Um, and and can that be quantified? So I, I thought I thought that was that mm -hmm. was an interesting point. So it involved uh, twenty one hospitals. They included any term infants admitted to a tertiary NICU. They had pretty much no exclusion criteria. Um, the modes of non invasive respiratory support were CPAP and nasal high flow. Uh, data on specific setting devices or interface were not available. Again, it's it's kind of the it's what you get when you do database review, right? You can't get super granular data, but you do compensate by having large data sets. So it's, you knew that from the get-go. The uh, primary outcome was the annual change in hospital-specific rates of non-invasive respiratory support per 1,000 inborn live birth expressed as a percentage change. They had some secondary outcome, which were the change in rates of mechanical ventilation the number of pneumothoraces requiring drainage, the number of exogenous surfactant treatment, or and um, the last one was death before hospital discharge. So the data, 754,000 term infants over nine years. Like I said, you, you get those large, large numbers, and then you can't have all the, like you can't find out whether they were using Optiflow or Ram mm -hmm. Canyon, right? It's just, it's just right. the way it is. It's perfectly fine. Um, overall, the estimated average change in term uh, inborn was plus 9.4 births per year. So there was more and more birth. Um, they had uh, 14,000 eligible registrants from the 21 NICUs. A total of 12,719 infants received non-invasive respiratory support across the period. And the number of infants receiving non-invasive respiratory support almost doubled from 2010 to 2018, going from 980 to 1,913. Mm. So that's already pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So the primary outcome was across the 21 NICUs, hospital-specific rates of non-invasive respiratory support increased by 8.7% per year from an estimated 10.8 per thousand live births in 2010 to 20.8 per thousand births in 2018. And I suggest you look at some of these graphs where the trend lines are pretty much a straight line mm -hmm. with, a, with a positive slope. 19 of the 21 NICUs had a statistically significant increase in non-invasive respiratory support over time. No NICU had a statistically significant decrease <laughs> in non-invasive respiratory support over time. The annual rate of non-invasive respiratory support at an individual NICU uh, ranged from 3.1 to 22.6 per thousand live birth in 2010 and from 9.7 to 40.9. So even that variability was shifted up significantly uh, across the study period. Some of the secondary outcomes were quite interesting as well. There was no change over time in the rates of mechanical ventilation or death. However, there was some evidence of increasing pneumothorax requiring drainage 4% per year, um, increasing from an estimate of 
0.5 per thousand live births in 2010 to 0.66 per thousand live births in 2018. So, you know, not it's never it's never risk free. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was an increase in surfactant use, um, 7.8 percent per year. So. The conclusion are that the use of non-invasive support to treat term infants in the NICU has increased over time in Australia and New Zealand without any reduction in mechanical ventilation, mm-hmm. but a concomitant increase in pneumothorax requiring drainage and surfactant use. They're concluding in their conclusion, they're mentioning that clinicians should be diligent in selecting newborn infants most likely to benefit from treatment with non-invasive respiratory support in this relatively low-risk population. And they obviously mentioned that this inter-unit variation that we were talking about earlier warrants further um, exploration. So um, we, we're running out of time, but the discussion was very interesting. Yeah. Um, they, they were asking basically uh, why, what are the drivers for this increasing mm-hmm. use? And they're saying, are we taking evidence that has shown that non-invasive is very good in preterm infants mm-hmm. and just translating that straight to term infants without really having the evidence that this that this is true um have we just gotten more comfortable um do we think that babies that maybe should be monitored in the nursery can't be monitored closely anyway they have all these different hypotheses mm-hmm. that i think are very very thought provoking and compelling uh so i suggest i suggest you you read the um yeah and and obviously, they're talking about now that we're using this non-invasive, are we, um, we're doing this to avoid, right? We're doing mm-hmm. this, this by, we're doing this of trying to start non-invasive mechanical ventilation to reduce uh, complications, to reduce the use of surfactant. But in truth, this is not happening. Like we're using more surfactant right. than before and we're, you have no more pneumothoraces. So anyway, there's a lot. They talk about the limitations of their data. Obviously, no assessment of maternal factors um, and all the other stuff associated with using a data set. I thought that was a very interesting study. Yeah, very interesting. It, I would like, you know, there's so many reasons that babies have respiratory distress, right? And so when we talk about individualizing medicine and phenotypes in the NICU, um, maybe that is the next step in stratifying babies is by pathology, right? Like it, maybe it matters for why, why you need respiratory support. And I think that's why it bore out with the term infants because their needs are different. Yeah. I thought that was super smart to just use the term infants Um, and non-invasive support. um, Again, um, I mentioned that, right. That the Mm non-invasive supports was, uh, CPAP and nasal high flow. Right. So. Yeah. All right. All right. I think that's it for Journal Club today. Um, we are very grateful for a lot of the messages that we've received mm-hmm. via email and via the Twitter handle uh, to support the work that we're doing. We're um, really happy to, I mean, these are the messages that keep the spark going. For sure. <laughs> uh, when we're having like the past few weeks that we've had where we're both on service <laughs> and it's just nuts. <laughs> Lots of late night recording. Like tonight. (laughs) Um, In any case. um, But yeah, thank you everybody for all your support. Uh, Go register on the Neonatal Network and let's get some discussions going on research and stuff like that. It's really exciting. Yeah, register and post. 
Yeah, remember that the neonatal network is a HIPAA-protected platform, so we can talk about patient care, we can talk about cases, uh, and it's a platform reserved for physicians and providers. So it's really the perfect place, in our opinion, to have meaningful conversation with one another. Um, Daphna, I will see you on Monday for Neo Review. Sounds good. Take care, Bye, buddy. everybody. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.